Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for uh, the chance to be in your word this morning. I'm thankful for the people that are here that made it safely. Uh, Lord, we think about uh, the ministries that we get to be a part of as a church, Lord, the different people who are serving. Uh, I thank you for uh, Yonkies who are serving in the coffee shop, Lord, and the ministry that they do, and just hospitality and loving the people that come to this church. Uh, Father, to be able to make it a comfortable atmosphere so that we can enjoy a, a nice beverage uh, in the morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you also for our missionaries that we have. I thank you for Charlie and Donna Reed at Biblical Concepts and Counseling. And, uh, Father, the, the marriages that they can impact for the kingdom of God, that they can uh, help people through those difficult spots and keep them uh, focused on how they can glorify you with their marriage. Lord, we pray for other churches in town as well. I think of uh, Second Baptist Church with Pastor Daryl Wheeler there, Lord. We pray that you'd be guiding and directing that church, Lord, that you'd be using them to edify and build up the body of Christ in Cheyenne. Uh, Lord, that they would be adding to their number daily those who are saved. Uh, Father, we thank you that we have the chance to be in your word today. I'm excited to see what you want to tell us uh, through this uh, short passage in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Lord, I'm excited to uh, challenge us and ask that you would uh, really uh, allow your Holy Spirit to challenge us even beyond the words that are preached. Uh, Father, I would pray that the, uh, that the word wouldn't return void. We know your scripture promises that. And so we're asking that your spirit would be doing the real teaching today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, please. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Uh, but we are in uh, the gospel of Mark. We call it Jesus in action because it's just boom, boom, boom. One thing after another. Jesus is moving. That's the style of writing that... Uh, Mark has used here as he does this, uh, and we're going to be looking at just four short verses today, just four verses to kind of give us a, a quick five verses, I say out loud now as I look at it closer. It's five verses, 18 through 22, and it says this in verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts a new wine into an old skin. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. So uh, the passage is going to be talking about this exciting idea of fasting. How many of you are excited to talk about fasting? I see uh, that's just, just brimming with excitement in your, in your hearts and your minds right now. Uh, fasting is one of those things that is uh, very clearly taught in Scripture, and very clearly uh, ignored by Christians. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just not something uh, we invest a whole lot of time or energy in. Uh, it's not a thing that uh, feels normal to us, uh, but it seems to be scripturally something that was very normal for Jesus, for his apostles, and it's something that God has uh, always uh, uh, taught about in the scripture. Uh, in this particular passage, we don't want to lose the context of what's happening here. Uh, when we look at that, at that first verse there in verse 18, it says John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. So let's remember that these guys are at that moment fasting. So they are in that moment already at a place of hunger. But if you remember what was happening, they're at a party right now. 
I don't know if you recall that from the weeks before, uh, but the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And then Jesus has to answer that question. But remember that, uh, that, that Matthew had just come to Christ. He began to follow after Jesus. And uh, in this, he gathers together all of his, his buddies who happen to be tax collectors. And they're just kind of having this big old party. They're all eating together. But imagine everybody's having a good time. Everybody's eating, but you're fasting. So you don't get to eat. And so here you are, you're fasting. And it's not just the Pharisees, although sometimes we look at the Pharisees and we think they're the, the bad example in all these things. But it's not just that they were fasting. John the, uh, John the Baptist, his disciples were fasting as well. We have no written reason why they're fasting. It just says that they were. Uh, we can try to draw some implications from this. Um, there, there is uh, only one type of fasting commanded in the Old Testament. Uh, that they would fast on the Day of Atonement, but that doesn't seem to be what's going on here because Jesus would have been involved with that. He took part in the different feasts and festivals, and so it couldn't necessarily or probably isn't necessarily that, but we do see in later verses, in later chapters, that the Pharisees used to brag about twice a week fasting. So two days out of every week they would fast, and so maybe they were just part of this new ritualistic fasting that they had come up with uh, this, this thing that God never called them to, but twice a week fasting. But either way, they're hungry, they're cranky, and they don't understand why Jesus and his buddies aren't fasting too. Why is it that you're having a party with tax collectors and sinners, and you're eating whatever you want? But us Pharisees and the disciples of John, we just have to stand back and watch the party. Well, Jesus is going to uh, answer that question here for them uh, but before we get into the answer, I just want to give you an overview of everything that the Bible says about fasting, as concise as I can, as quick as I can. Uh, but uh, in that, maybe I should describe what fasting is. I've said fasting many times. It doesn't just mean going quickly, right? This is a different concept. Fasting, in this case, is denying yourself, typically of food, for the purpose of drawing your attention towards God and God's attention towards whatever it is you're fasting about. Uh, John Piper describes it as hungering for God, saying, I hunger for God more than I hunger for the fleshly things like food. And in Scripture, you'll see that it's not always just 100% not eating, although that's the typical fast that people would recognize, that you just say, for a set amount of time, I'm not going to eat. But there's other things that you see. Uh, Daniel has a particular fast where he just chooses some foods, that he skips. Uh, you'll also see in 1 Corinthians this idea of fasting from sexual relations for a time to devote yourself to prayer. And so there's just this various ways that you can be involved in fasting. And so the way uh, I like to put fasting is it's just any time you deny your flesh for seeking after the things of God. And so there might be various ways that you can do that. You can uh, fast from entertainment is a, is a good one. Uh, I remember when Sheila and I were young and in college, and uh, much more godly than we are now. Um, <laughs> that was supposed to be funny. Nobody thought, they all thought that was true. Um, <laughs> anyway, when we were young and in college, uh, we got convicted that uh, we weren't spending enough time in the Word, and so we put a note on our TV that said, don't turn on until you've had devotions. And it was just a little reminder for us. Basically, we were saying that I would never pursue this fleshly desire of mine to watch TV until I had first fed my spiritual desire to be feasting on the Word of God. So that was just kind of one of those things that we did. I remember uh, going through a sugar fast one time. 
when I was in college, just saying, and it wasn't for health reasons. Believe me, I don't do a whole lot for health reasons. Um, this was specifically a time where we set aside and said, we want to draw closer to God. And so we're going to take something that's pretty obviously important that our flesh desires, uh, probably less so for Sheila. I don't want to sound more godly than her, but for me, giving up sugar was a bigger deal than it was for her, probably, um, particularly since I have a pretty steady Coca-Cola habit. Um, but uh, we just set aside an amount of time, and we said for this amount of time, we're not going to pursue sugar. We're not going to have sugar in our food. We're not going to do sugary snacks, no desserts, all those things, but it was just this idea, and then what we tried to replace that with was prayer. So when we had the urge for sugar, we would pray instead. When we would normally have dessert, we would pray instead. It was just kind of this opportunity for us to deny our flesh for the fulfillment of our spirit that we could deny our flesh so we could focus on God. And it's actually kind of a, a powerful thing. I wish I could say I was good at it. I am not a good faster. I am a, a cranky faster. That's who I am. Which then you have a cranky pastor and nobody wants that. So, But that's just the way it was for me. It just It's always been like that. Now, I did notice I don't do, I've never done a 40-day fast or anything like that. Um, I know people that have, and there are people that think that's a thing, uh, because Jesus did it, and everyone wants to do what Jesus did. Well, Jesus died on a cross, too, so um, I have not been called to do a 40-day fast at this point in my life, uh, but we've tried to do some different fasts, three-day fast, six-day fast, and I can just tell you from experience, um, uh, by day three, you've really struggled at this point, but after day three, oddly enough, it doesn't bother you that much anymore. But there's kind of this window. Those first couple of days really are just like this real battle. But then after those first couple of days, you, you believe it or not, you kind of get used to it. You don't have the struggles like you did. Um, but anyway, fasting is an overview from what we see in Scripture. Uh, just a number of different things we'll, we'll look at here, uh, kind of overviewing some of the things we see in Scripture. The first is a ceremonial fast. As I was saying earlier, in the Old Testament, the only fast that is commanded is on the Day of Atonement. Uh, you don't see other fasts commanded in the Old Testament. But on the Day of Atonement, as they're seeking after God, there was a, a ceremonial fast that they would go through. They would specifically do it for this purpose, corporately as a nation. Uh, interestingly enough, last night I was at uh, North Cheyenne Baptist Church. They had a speaker in that was talking about the fall feasts of Israel, the holy days of Israel, uh, those three fall feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of the Day of Atonement, and then finally, um, uh, tabernacles, those three feasts is what he was looking at last night. But I love the way he explained it. He said, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Or, I'm sorry, the Feast of Trumpets. That's the first one. And there's the sounding of this alarm. And it's supposed to sound as an alarm to you to begin to examine yourself for a period of 10 days. And then on the Day of Atonement is the day when all of your sins are put uh, being put on these two different goats, these, the goat that's going to be sacrificed and the blood of that sacrifice is going to be put on the scapegoat and the scapegoat is going to be carried and dropped off of a cliff uh, so that your sins are being chased out of you, essentially, is kind of the picture that they have. But what it's saying is that there's this period leading up to the Day of Atonement where you're examining yourself to see if there's any sin. And on the Day of Atonement, the day when you're going to be made right with God, when your sins are going to be forgiven, that you're fasting, you're setting aside that time to fast Again, to really focus in on God. But that was the only ceremonial fast uh, listed specifically in the Old Testament. Now, there's other examples of fasting in the Old Testament that we'll look at. But that was the only one that was instructed by God. 
Now Jesus, and I arranged these in the order of the length of the words because it looked better on my slide. So this is not chronological. This is not what's more important. This is just an overview so that it looks nicer on the slide. Uh, Jesus, though, uh, fasted for testing and temptation. You see this uh, in, in the book of Matthew. We also saw uh, at least a highlight of it in Mark. It doesn't go into detail in Mark, but in Matthew it talks about how he went into the wilderness for 40 days and he prayed and fasted, right? And it says that he was being tested or tempted by Satan. And so there was this testing, this time of testing. And in a sense, as you fast, you're testing yourself. You're testing yourself to see if I desire God more than I desire cheeseburgers. It's a testing of yourself. If I desire the things of the spirit more than I desire the things of the flesh. And even if that's just setting aside of something, you know, I I went, uh, I think it was 30 days without internet one time, uh, which uh, you would think would be um, no big deal, but I do everything on the internet. I don't even think for myself anymore. If somebody says, hey, do you remember that guy in that movie? I'm instantly on my phone like, oh, there it is. Got it. That's just, it's just like that. I had to like physically remove the icons from my computer so I couldn't even see them. So that when I went to click on, I'd be like, where are those? Oh yeah, I'm not doing that right now. And now with the cell phone, this was before the cell phone, man, you'd be in trouble, right? You'd just be in trouble all the time. It's a difficult thing. But you set aside those things to see if you desire those things more than God. Another example is a prayer aid that oftentimes in Scripture that it says prayer and fasting, that they're often linked together. Uh, One of the things I like to tell people, and as I kind of already demonstrated that earlier uh, in explaining fasting for my own self, uh, but what I would do is if I would normally have a meal at that time and I'm fasting from that meal, I would take that time and be in the Word and I would be in prayer. I would connect that concept that I'm replacing something here. I'm replacing the pursuit of my own desires, my own flesh. I'm replacing that with pursuing spiritual things. And that's where that connection, I think, of prayer and fasting uh, can often go. Uh, They used it at times to seek wisdom. Uh, Remember when they were uh, trying to decide who the first elders were going to be. Well, Paul says, let's pray and fast. Or when we're going to set aside missionaries for the work of the service. They prayed and fasted. The elders of the church gathered together and prayed and fasted. And we've done that at different times at the church when we're trying to decide things or when we're trying to choose people for different issues. Uh, We do these kind of one-day fast type things where we just say, hey guys, why don't you consider as elders fasting over this issue? Uh, Then there's the picture of repentance. Fasting sometimes can be a sign of repentance. It can be a thing that you do in repentance for your sins. You see how that was honored by Nineveh. When Nineveh began to fast and even made their cows fast and and they wore sackcloth, they were essentially saying we're miserable of spirit because of our sin. And so they were outwardly demonstrating how bad they felt about sinning against God. And God saw that and he honored that and he forgave them. Uh, Then you see examples of sorrow that Nehemiah, Ezra did this as well. But Nehemiah and Ezra, that they would fast because they were so sad when they saw the state of the nation of Israel, when they saw how bad the people were, when they saw how bad the temple was, and when they saw how bad the city was, when everything was just torn up and torn down. Uh, The Psalms talk about this in many places, about fasting being an example of humility. If you want to build humility into your life, fasting is a great way to do it. 
It's a great example of that. Daniel used fasting, it said in Daniel 9.3, to seek God. He began to pray and fast to seek after God. In his particular situation, he was looking uh, for some answers to some things uh, that were going on in the world around him. And then you have the example of Anna in the Gospel of Luke, this 84-year-old prophetess who would fast before God. It was a style of worship. She used fasting for the purpose of worship. So it's not atypical to fast in Scripture. The question that's being brought by the disciples of John and the Pharisees, it's a legitimate question to Jesus. Hey, we're fasting. We're fasting right now. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't the followers of Jesus fasting? So Jesus is going to give really two answers to that question. Uh, The first one uh, is seen here in verse 19. When they ask, uh, why do your disciples not fast? Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he answers them with this illustration of a bridegroom. A bridegroom is the groom who's about to marry a bride, right? And he sets up the situation like this. Nobody fasts on the wedding day. That's a day of celebration. And so the attendants, people that are hanging out with the groom on that day, that's more of a party day. In this scenario, though, who is the bridegroom that the disciples are hanging out with? It is Jesus. In other words, Jesus, who is God, is in the very physical presence of his disciples. His disciples have the most amazing circumstances in the history of the world. They have nothing to be sad about. They're physically with Jesus. Jesus says, this isn't a time to fast. Your Savior is here. Your Messiah is here. Even as we sang that song, we will dance on the streets that were golden. It even had that line about the bridegroom in there. It's that same picture the glorious bride and the great son of man, just drawing that picture of the church being wed to Jesus Christ, of the people of God being married to him. Jesus says, hey, if I'm here, there's no need to fast. Why cry out to me? Just tap me on the shoulder and say, Jesus, I have a question. There's no reason to go through that whole process because Jesus is right there. But when Jesus is taken away, he says, then my disciples will fast. That's the second part of that same first answer there. They don't fast right now because I'm right here. But when I'm taken out of the picture, then my disciples will fast. Well, let's make this as clear as we can. Right now, Jesus is not with us. Right now is the time that his disciples should fast, that we should be involved in fasting until such a time as Jesus Christ returns. I don't believe there's any fasting in heaven. I think it's all feasting. I think this is the time to fast. Between the time of now, between the time Jesus left, really, up until the time that Jesus returns again, this is the time that we should be dedicating ourselves in some way to fasting. We should be denying our flesh so that we can pursue our spirit. We're not denying our flesh so we can earn God's favor. We're denying our flesh that it would be an actual representation 
of our heart, that we would represent truly what's going on in our hearts. And so that's the issue. Jesus is saying, I'm right here. Why would they fast? But when I'm gone, my disciples will fast. Well, he's gone right now. The instruction of Jesus is when he's gone, his disciples will fast. If you count yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, fasting should enter into your life in some way. Fasting should be a part of what you do. I'm not saying you have to fast twice a week week like the Pharisees. In fact, I'm going to say that's actually probably a bad idea. Anytime you add at the end like the Pharisees, just assume it's a bad idea, right? I'm not saying you follow their example or their tradition, but I'm saying in some way you should be of the habit of denying your flesh for the pursuit of the things of God, that you should hunger more for God than you hunger for the things of this world. And we're going to lay that out a little bit more here as Jesus continues to answer these questions. The second part of his answer, the second answer to the question is found here in verses 21 and 22. And it's a little bit confusing when you first read it. In fact, uh, for years, I didn't think this had anything to do with the question on fasting. For years, I thought this was a completely separate issue. But as you study it out, you start to realize that in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, they're all put exactly in the same order. It's not like they put this teaching anywhere else. They put it in the immediate context of the question here. There's no indication in any of those Gospels that this is a different scenario, a different question, a different teaching. It's just a continuation on of the answer of Jesus. And so in verse 21, with the subject of why don't your disciples fast, Jesus says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. He's going to make this contrast in two ways between the old and the new. And somehow in his answer of the old and the new, he's going to be explaining why he doesn't have his disciples fasting at this point. And the idea that he's connecting is that the old way of fasting is not the same as the way that Jesus wants them to fast. And so they want things to look like they have looked. Jesus says, No, the way we're going to fast going forward is going to look nothing like how you fasted. In fact, he's going to say even this, the way you fasted is not even compatible with the way that my disciples will fast. They're not compatible. And he illustrates that with uh, this idea of patching clothes. Now, people don't do a lot of clothes patching anymore. I'm going to be honest with you. It used to be a lot more common. Uh, One of the signs that this is a much richer nation than we believe is that you don't see a lot of people walking around with patches on their clothes. You get a tear in your pants, you go buy new pants. That's the way America works, right? When I was a kid, you got a tear in your pants, and my mom would sew things on my pants or iron things on my pants. And I would walk around with all these little splotches of stuff on my pants of other fabric on there, right? Well, the problem becomes when you take this fabric that's never been washed, it hasn't shrunk yet, and you put it on clothes that have already shrunk, so you sew it so that it's tight on there, then you wash those pants, Now, the thing that was tight on there, the patch, shrinks, and it bunches up all the way around. You can see it all bunched up around there, and it can even tear away from that. 
So again, that may not be an example that you've seen recently because patches aren't as popular as they used to be. I don't know if they were ever popular. There wasn't a whole lot of choices in the past. This is what you did. Those pants are still good as long as you have a crotch in them, basically, was the way that worked. Like, pants are pants, and so you can't physically patch them anymore. Before long, you just have new legs, complete new legs on your pants, right? That's not the way it is now. So it may not hit as clearly. The next one doesn't hit as clearly either to us in today's age, but it's the same concept. The new won't work with the old. They're not compatible. And he uses the idea of taking new wine and putting it into an old wineskin. Now, we don't put wine in wineskins. We put wine in bottles. You can put new wine or old wine into a bottle. It doesn't seem to impact the bottle at all. But the idea is that a new wine is going to go through this process of expanding more, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to tear up the old wineskin. So you always want to put new wine in a new wineskin, right? I don't know. I don't have any, I'm just assuming that Jesus is telling me the truth here, right? So this is the way I look at this one. I don't drink anything out of a cup that previously had milk in it. Because in my mind, once milk has been in a cup, that cup is contaminated. You cannot put anything else in a cup after you've drinking milk out of it. I'm just sorry, that's just the rules of my world. I don't know where I came up with that. I don't know why. I will do it with soda, and soda's sticky, so it makes no sense. I can put soda in a cup, and I can drink out of that cup anything in the world except milk. Milk has to be in a clean glass, and that's all that can ever be in that glass until it's been through the dishwasher, right? Until it's been sanitized. It just doesn't work together. That's how I have to kind of think about it, that these two things are not compatible. Now, understand, I also have some other weirdness that goes on. Uh, I don't like my food to touch, right? Like, if it was supposed to touch, they would have made a casserole. They purposely cooked all of these things separate, and so they should be separate on your plate. And you don't just sit there, and some people will take all that food, and they'll mix it together on their plate, and they'll put three or four things on one fork. Are you kidding me? How offensive is that to the cook? (laughs) They didn't make a casserole. They made steak, potatoes, and corn, right? So you eat steak, potatoes, and corn, not steak, potato, corn, casserole. It's not compatible. I even, um, so my mother-in-law bought me these plates, and so we've always had the Corel Ware, you know, this is like the, the fancy Walmart stuff, right? Um, but it's like indestructible. She found some Corel plates that have sections in them for me, and there's no pattern on them. They're just white with three sections. They're amazing. I don't understand why every plate doesn't look like that. It's just not compatible. And Jesus is saying that your old way of fasting is not compatible with my way of fasting. Now, this is an interesting thing because there's not a whole lot of detail given here by Jesus. He's just saying it just very plainly. The old way is not compatible with the new way. They don't go together. So I thought maybe we should look and try to figure out what he means by the old way. I think Isaiah 58 does a great job of this. One of the things that you see in the book of Isaiah and in really all of those uh, exile prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you see kind of this constant issue where the people of God were going through the motions of worshiping God, but everything else about their life was offensive to God. And so you had a people that was constantly in sin, but hey, they made it 
to Sabbath every week. A people that was constantly doing injustice to the people of their land. But hey, we fasted on a regular basis. A people that didn't even care about God because they were worshiping other gods, but they still kept the holy days for God. And so God finally looks at that and he gets kind of tired of seeing the hypocrisy of it. He says this at one point. He says, I'm sick of your bloody sacrifices. Well, he invented the sacrificial system. Why was he sick of their sacrifices? He said, because they no longer represent your heart. I never wanted the sacrifices. I wanted your heart. And I think that's the issue that we're going to see here with the way that they were fasting in the time of Jesus. They were fasting out of tradition. They were fasting just because that's what you're supposed to do. But they didn't really care about God. They didn't really concern themselves with the things that God wanted. Uh, It's illustrated for us in Isaiah 58. I'll start here in verse 3. It's uh, the people are speaking to God. They ask this question. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? God answers. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife to strike with a wicked fist. Do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I chose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed or for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Do you call this a fast even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I chose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. It's not to divide your bread. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily bring spring forth. Your righteousness will go on before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fall. Uh, Essentially what God is saying is, you're begging me to bless you while you're cursing everything around you and everyone around you, while you're living a sinful, horrific life, acting out in evil, you want me to bless you because you went through this religious tradition of humbling yourself by fasting. God said, that is not why I want you to fast. You're not fasting for the very purpose of somehow earning the right of God's blessing in your life. You should be living a godly life. And as you do that, you will by nature fast. And the things you'll find yourself fasting for are truth and justice and caring for the needy and the poor. Those are the things that will become important to you. And when your heart matches this pseudo-false humility of fasting, when your heart matches those things, God says on that day, 
on that day, I'll respond to you. But until your heart matches your actions, your fasting is a waste of time. I think that's what he's saying here as these disciples of, of the Pharisees and John were fasting. There was no connection to where their heart was. They weren't examining themselves. They weren't trying to live more godly. They were essentially saying, as I understand the faith, if I push this button, God has no choice but to respond. And so I'm going to push the fast button. If I push the fast button, God is obligated somehow to respond to me in a specific way. They had taken the relationship with God that was designed to show your love for him, and they had turned it into a computer program, a bunch of if-then statements. They had turned it into a set of rules that were used not to govern themselves, but to govern God and say, if I do this, God has to respond. They're treating him as if they've, they've rubbed the, the lamp and the genie has come out of the bottle and now he has to give them three wishes. Their heart wasn't for God. The fasting that they were doing was not going to match the fasting that Jesus would have them do. So when we look in the New Testament, there's three passages that govern how Jesus took on fasting. Of course, we've already talked about in Matthew chapter 4 how Jesus fasted. We've already talked about it here. But by example, Jesus did fast as he was being tested and tempted. So he set the example. And then in today's passage, he told us that it was expected that his disciples would fast. But his clearest teaching is actually in Matthew 6. So turn to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll go through his teaching just briefly as I look at the clock. Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount, verse 16 through 18. Important words here in verse 16. Whenever you fast. Not if you fast, when you fast. The expectation is there from Jesus that his disciples would fast. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So his idea is whenever you fast, fast in a way that you're doing it for God not to be seen by others. And he says, go through this process. Anoint your head, wash your face. In other words, look good. Here's what's interesting. If you think back to the passage that we were in in Mark chapter 2, somehow everybody knew that John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting. And that fits right in with the style of the Pharisees. Everything they did seemed to be for show. And so what God says is, I recognize your heart. You're doing this so people will see you fast. Well, guess what? They saw you. You got your reward in full. But you weren't doing this because you love me. So I have nothing to give you. You received exactly what you wanted. You got attention. Now, here's the deal. If we're to fast, we aren't to make a big show out of it. Because the only audience for our fast is God. He's the only one that we're concerning ourselves with. He's the only one that we were worried about 
how they respond to our fast. He's the only one. He's the person that we're fasting to. And he does say, it's kind of powerful, I think, in verse 18, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. How does that work? God's basically saying the evidence that you're doing this because of me is because I'm the only one that knows that you're doing it. God's the only one that sees it. It's only evidence to him. God says, now I know you're not doing this for anybody else. And it goes back to the heart of it. That true concept of humbling yourself before God, that fasting is not a religious show. Fasting is pursuing after God. That was the intent. That was the idea. That was the new fast that Jesus was anticipating. And it's really not new in the sense that it was never there. It was always what fasting was supposed to be. But that's kind of what Jesus constantly did in his teaching. He took us back to why these things existed over and over and over again. And in all of them, whether it was fasting or the sacrifices, whether it was worship or whether it was how you live in holiness, all of those things were not about me. They were all about God. And so when the Apostle Paul is teaching, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. So in your food, in your fleshly desires, how do you measure whether or not you're doing this to fulfill yourself or to glorify God? I can just share, just as a very simple way of confession, the evidence for me in my life is that the majority of my eating is for the glory of Sean. It's obvious like i wear hoodies for a reason because they're loose fitting because for some reason this day and age everybody makes everything slim fit and i'm not slim anything and the evidence of that and i've said this for years people are like oh you know your food is fuel i'm like no food is joy i don't know what you're talking about i eat because i like it and so when I pick food, I pick food. I don't look at my food and say, you know, I'm feeling like I need a little extra vitamin D today in my dinner. No. I'm like, I'm going to eat my dessert first so I don't waste calories on that salad there. Right? Like I eat for joy. But whose joy am I eating for? Mine. So if this guy who eats for his own pleasure, decides to skip a meal for the glory of God, God's going to notice that. Now, some of you, eating is not a big deal. There are some people that just have their eating under control, and God's like, you've always lived if you're eating under control. But there are other things in your life that you can set aside, some things that have become almost idols in your life. But you set those things aside because you love God more than you love the things of this world. And that's what fasting really does for us. It teaches us, it disciplines us to overcome our flesh. Interesting correlation, by the way, 
Um, I have actually noticed this in my life. I do diet and exercise from time to time, um, typically when it's hard to put my pants on. That's the, I, and so and I don't need to get into all the details of that, but I used to have actually a specific number in my mind that if I had to wear this size of pants, it was an immediate, you got to go on a diet. Now I just live in that size of pants and it doesn't bother me that much. But every time I can feel that the pants are getting tight, I think to myself, I need to do some diet and some exercise, right? Well, here's this strange thing that I've noticed. When I diet and exercise, believe it or not, I actually do better in things of the faith as well. It is so strange. And it's not that I'm doing the dieting and the exercise in order to do better in the faith, but what I'm having to do in order to diet and exercise is I have to say no to my flesh. And the more you get in the habit of saying no to your flesh, the easier it is to say yes to the Spirit of God. It's this idea in Scripture of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Hungering after God. So here's the deal. This is just a lot of good information unless you do something about it. I don't know what fasting is going to look like in your life, but it's time to fast. The people of God should be in the habit of fasting, of putting their flesh under submission, not because Pastor Sean said so, but because you have a desire in yourself to draw closer to God. Fasting does that for you, whether it's with food or whether it's with media, whatever it is that you're setting aside. Fasting is a powerful tool in the disciples' life to grow in their faith. I've said this to people before as well. If you're struggling, like you feel like you're not growing in your faith, you feel like you're not close to God, you feel like you can't overcome a specific sin in your world, specific sin in your life, Try fasting about it. Suddenly, you'll recognize quickly how serious you are about drawing close to God, about overcoming sin, about experiencing God in your life. Amen? All right, well, I'm going to close in prayer, and then you guys will figure out how you're going to fast to the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your word would continually speak to us. And Father, maybe it was... Uh, just within your will today, that there would be less people here because of the weather, uh, that maybe these are the people specifically that you wanted to speak to in your word today. Father, certainly I want people to use wisdom and to think through their own medical circumstances, but above all, Father, I want them to figure out how they can deny their flesh so that they can seek after you. Lord, I would pray this morning you'd be honored by the response of people, that people hearing your word today would have a desire in themselves to respond to it. Father, I pray that for myself as well. Lord, I don't want to be one of those guys who preaches one thing and lives another. Now help me, Lord, to see what's the desired fast. I know you've already been speaking to Sheila and I on some of these things, but what is that desired fast for us that we can live out your word as best we can? Father, we do love you and we want to pursue you with our life. Father, we want you to see a repentant people. 
that is growing in spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close.